0: In our with. We know all of the stories of uh, surviving in pools and riding on bikes through planes and all those things. The anxiety uh, in our area is almost as pervasive as the smoke is, uh, I would say. It's all just still surreal. I can remember leaving a, uh, a gathering of pastors just crying on a car. Hearing reports, 30 families in our church, 15 families in our church, eight families in our church. And we just try to assess and try to understand the scope of what's been going on. And the groaning that we uh, hear is almost audible in our area, and it's easy to try to get distracted from it. I was in a shelter, and there was this the man who had a leopard print sleeping mask. Hanging around his neck, and he was hitting a balloon with a little Hispanic girl on the top next to him. And he said, he'd never had grandkids, but it's good to have kids around to kind of keep them distracted." Um, and as funny as that scene was, i much about you, but my mind just kind of drifts back. Um, yeah, there's this thing going on, and it's hard to get away from it. It's hard to get our minds distracted. Every channel we watch and every conversation starter we have and every business we try to go through, we're just reminded of what's around us. And so the question for us this morning is, where do we turn for hope in days like these days? The answer is not just taking our minds off of something. It's putting our minds onto something else. So then you think, well, what would be great enough and lasting enough and sure enough And wonderful enough to put our minds on in order to distract us or in order to outweigh the suffering that we're having so that we can find this peace. And the Apostle Paul is going to claim that the conclusion of God's redemption through Jesus Christ not only makes hope possible, but that it's inevitable. We're going to be reading out of Romans chapter 8 verses 18 through 25 as we stand with me for the reading of God's Word. Here's this seemingly audacious claim from the Apostle Paul in chapter 8, starting in verse 18. It says this. Right? Consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Amen. But the creation waits for point of this text is that Paul is intending to have an effect on the people of Rome, the followers of Jesus Christ. See, they're suffering, and he wants them to endure this suffering in a certain kind of way. He wants their way to be of the hopeful and the patient kind, not the panicked and the irritable kind. And so how can he possibly encourage that? Well, he's going to talk about how God will rescue them in the future so that they can suffer well in the present. And Paul fully expects that putting their minds on God's coming redemption will strengthen them to last. That's what he expects. So here's our point just we'll in a sentence to the point of this text. Followers of Jesus Christ can endure suffering with hope and patience because of God's coming redemption. Three things to point out. The, the three ways that this text helps us to wait with hope. That's what this text is about. First, it doesn't minimize suffering, it faces it squarely. Second, knowing that suffering will end allows for patient and hopeful waiting. And third, God's coming redemption provides certain hope that can better. So first, it doesn't minimize suffering. I hope Everyone here this morning feels right to be sad and depressed or grieved about what's happening around us. You are not less of a Christian if you're not smiling. And that's, you might think that that's obvious, but sometimes in the church that's not obvious. And we don't suffer well. The Bible is full of sufferers and disasters. And the person who's most familiar with suffering, as we saw it, is the head of our church, the Lord Jesus Christ himself. And so we can suffer, we can struggle. If you look at the Bible, you'll find circumstances that are hard to explain and and overwhelming feelings all over the place. And so if you're feeling that way, you're not weird, you're normal. You're human because you're living in a fallen place. Listen to how our passage describes this suffering. In verse 20, it says that the creation was subjected to futility or put under this, this frustrating circumstance. In verse 21, it says that it's in bondage to decay. In verse 22, it says that ever since the beginning of creation, that it's been groaning all the way up until now. So it's saying this place is a hard place to be. But there's groaning involved. Mm-hmm. This word groaning, is, it comes up in different places in the Bible, where, for example, in 2 Corinthians 5, in talking about our physical bodies, many of us to relate to that. It says, for in this tent, meaning this body, we groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling, the resurrection body. In Hebrews 13, speaking of elders, <coughs> it says that that says, "Obey your leaders and submit to them, who they are keeping watch over your souls, so as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you." Isn't groaning an accurate description of what our world is like sometimes? <laughs> it's that inward side of the soul, that discouraged state, that discontentment that we all. And experience. Maybe it was watching an interview of a person who lost everything. Maybe right? he it was hearing another wind advisory, or, or hearing that people are looting these places that are evacuated. Maybe you saw that, or you heard that. You just groaning—that this groaning—is both a sense that things are not as they should be, and it's also a longing for for the things, or for the way that things ought to be. It's both of those things. This is not the way that life is meant to be. And you can trace that groaning all the way back to the garden when we rebelled against our king and creator. That's when we laid down this welcome map to sin and its production. And That came in it was affecting every area of society from, from nature to, to our communities, to our families, even to personally. It's affected all those things. This is what it means when it says in verse 20 that Creation was subjected to futility. That's something that God did. That he placed that rebellious world under a curse which would constrain and frustrate and aggravate life. And this was God's just response to Adam Eve's new idea. And it, it daily reminds us that the Satan that Satan lied when he promised a better option than what God had. And so we're a part of this fallen fallen world. Now that's obvious now, but one of the ways that people try to do suffering is by denying suffering. There are a whole world religions based on that. And so people offer platitudes and simple solutions because they don't have a category for it. But notice that Paul does not do that here. He doesn't retreat. He doesn't say, well, it's not that bad. It's not what he says. He fully acknowledges the pain and the difficulty that, that they're in. He's tasted much of it himself, right? If you look at his life. He lists things later on in the chapter like distress and persecution and famine and nakedness and danger and so on. So it's not that he's naive about what's going on. He just happens to believe that the gospel has plenty of resources to deal with any kind of suffering that we're going to come across. And he expects that that hope is going to transfer to these believers in Rome. But we have to strike a balance here. We have to say that God's world is both good and it's corrupted as well. We see that balance even in our own circumstance, where we live in this beautiful place, wine country, and much of it is on fire. We're amazed by the generosity we see in these news stories of people being selfless, and these first responders, and yet there's also people taking advantage. You hear people who live further away complaining about the smell of smoke in their hair. And you sit across from a 95-year-old woman who's been sitting in this evacuation center for four days and she says, you know, I'm just really grateful. We see that God's world is both good and corrupted at the same time. And we have to hold these things in tension, that God's world is good, but we can't let that lead to being naive. And God's world is corrupted, but we can't let that lead to hopelessness. This past week has been difficult, it's been painful, we're still learning about the damage, right, the full scope of this. But there is hope. And it's not because FEMA is coming in, it's not because of Sonoma Strong, it's because God is renewing his creation, just like he promised to do. And that is a certainty that the church rests on. It is not a possibility, it is a certainty. And the light of the gospel is shining brighter than the darkness of these circumstances. And so we can face this suffering squarely. We don't have to minimize it in order to uh, walk with people into it. That's the first thing that Paul acknowledges here. Now how might that uh, have implications for our lives? How does that help us to, to suffer with patience and hope? Well, first, it's just refreshing to know that the gospel is sufficient to handle these things, right? So we can embrace the difficulty of what's happening and process it and not deny what's going on. So if you're struggling and sad and frustrated and disappointed and confused and longing for a better world, you're amongst friends. You're not the exception. You're not lacking faith. You just live in a world that is family. The second implication is it really changes how we help others too. I not about you, but there were moments I just felt overwhelmed to do anything in this circumstance. But if we know that the gospel is sufficient to handle any degree of suffering, then that means that we can walk with people into the depth of suffering all the way to the bottom. And maybe our knee-jerk reaction to stay away and not, I'm not sure what to say or not sure. what. this is telling us the gospel can handle suffering and we as the people of god can see paul's confidence in this text and walk with people even to the depths of suffering we need not be fearful of our church we can walk into those circumstances the second thing that we see in this text is that knowing that suffering is going to end allows for this patient and hopeful waiting Paul doesn't just leave us with, "Well, suffering is normal. Get used to it." That's not where he leaves us. The reason this passage is helpful to these believers is because it's communicating there's an end to this. Notice the language in verse 18: For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth really comparing with the glory that's to be revealed. Verse 19: Creation waits with eager longing. Verse 21, the creation will be set free. Verse 22, the pains of childbirth, right, those don't last forever. Verse 23, we who have the first fruits of the Spirit, grown inwardly as we wait eagerly. In fact, Paul says in verse 24, he uses this interesting sentence, for in this hope, speaking of the future hope we have, we were saved, past tense, Meaning this hope is so built in and hardwired to the gospel that it was a part of even the message in the very beginning. This is a part of our gospel. All the seen and unseen language has to do with now versus the future. So there's a timing to this. and So he's calling them to hopeful waiting in their suffering because it's going to end. He's like the midwife encouraging the woman who's close to giving birth. If you've participated in a birth before, how do you encourage women in their pain? Very specifically. But, second of all, I mean, what do you do? Do you get them to focus on the present moment? It doesn't hurt that bad? There are some people in the world who have it worse than you right now? (laughs) Or you should hear the lady a few doors down. But so that's not how you encourage someone in the midst of suffering. What do you do? You just ride what's ahead, don't you? It's not going to be long before you meet this baby. You're doing amazing. You're almost there. This pain is going to be over. See, any one of us can suffer for a goal. The hope of the finish line keeps runners running. The hope of retirement helps employees get to the end. The hope of staying fit keeps you on the treadmill. The hope of the day when these fires are going to be put out is motivating these first responders to just stick with it and not sleep. And notice here that creation is on tiptoe with their necks praying to feed. When this is going to happen? Eagerly awaiting the day when God returns to finish this rescue that he started. You hear how the eager waiting just keeps coming up again and again and again in our text. Isn't it good to know, folks, that the groaning hasn't ended? Amen. There's an important little phrase in verse 20 and 21 that I want to point out to you when it says, For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to decay and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God it says in hope remember God is the one who subjected creation to this futility but he did so in the hope that and that kind of sounds like well we hope it works out right? I'm going to put it under some frustration and hopefully something will come up but that's not what it means okay it's saying he did that on the basis that with the assurance that knowing that this that creation is subjected to futility will come out of that first place and will be redeemed by his hand God isn't seeing if things work out he's making them work out and he will do that Amen. Our waiting is hopeful because his return is certain. Now, with this in mind, I want to read verse 18 again. It might have offended you the first time you read that. It says this, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. How can that be? On weeks like this week? Well, think about it. Think about what you were preoccupied with last Saturday. What were your burdens then? What were things that seemed really, really important to you then? I remember Sunday night thinking about if my fantasy football team <laughs> would <be> well <laughs> enough on Monday night to win. I remember thinking through the list of projects that I was going to do on Monday, trying to figure out which one I was going to do on my day off reason I forgot about all those things on Monday. (laughs) Why? Because the weight of evacuating on Monday morning caused the weight of all those previous concerns to fade away. There's something about gathering your valuables, potentially for the last time, that makes everything else just fade away. The stresses of before the fire weren't worth mentioning by comparison to the stresses after the fire started and that was not a conscious decision that i made right it's just the weight of, of those things just dropped out and so everything else was affected and paul was saying when jesus christ returns and the redemptive work of god that has been building for thousands of years comes into full view the painful and terrible events of this past week will not be the topic of conversation amen they will have faded, and our awe and our obsession and our mind share will be on the worth and the beauty of Jesus Christ, not on these things. Yes. For some of us that's hard to imagine, but it's true. Now he says, yes, pain and suffering, they're here, they're real, and we must face them squarely, but by comparison, they are not worth comparing to the glory that's going to be revealed to us. What he's saying, friends, is it's all a matter of time. And it's all a matter of perspective. He says in other places, like 2 Corinthians 4, in my favorite portion of scripture, it says, for this slight momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. We know that, especially now. So he's not minimizing the pain of their suffering, he's not minimizing the pain of our suffering, he's focused on the maximum beauty and joy that will be ours when Jesus Christ returns. He's saying our future is that promising. I'll explain that I found, uh, not found, but lyrics to a song by Andy Peterson, who I will make a mandatory, uh, mandatory uh, author on your playlist. Um, in the weeks to come. He'll, be, he'll take it years, but I'll persuade him. Uh, he's a great uh, musician and artist. And I just thought I'd read some lyrics of the song called, After the Last Tear Falls. After the last tear falls, after the last secret's told, after the last bullet tears through flesh and bone, after the last child starves, and the last girl walks the boulevard, after the last year that's just too hard, There's love. After the last disgrace, after the last lie to save some face, after the last brutal jab from a poisoned tongue, after the last dirty politician, after the last meal down at the mission, after the last lonely night in prison, there's love. After the last plan fails, after the last siren wails, after the last young husband sails off to join the war. Last, this marriage is over. After the last young girl's innocence is stolen. After the last years of silence that won't let a heart open, there's love. And in the end, the end is oceans and oceans of love and love again. And we'll see how the tears that have fallen were caught in the palms of the giver of love and the lover of all. Listen to this. And we'll look back on these tears as old tales because after the last tear falls there's love friends we will look back on these tears as hard as hard as it is to imagine we look back on them as old tales what are the implications for this how are you waiting in your suffering Are you able to wait with hope or have you been panicked? Where is your heart at this moment? It would be helpful, secondly, as a community for us to notice how other people are doing and waiting. How might it be an encouragement to one another, right? This week was a hard week to have that biggest perspective. And we will all ebb and flow with with the right angle on things. So we need to help one another in that. You need other people right now. You need them. Take advantage this morning. You need to cry with people. You need to confess to people. You need to pray with others. Give biggest perspective. Lastly, God's coming redemption provides certain hope that's incomparably better. You might ask, well, what is so great about this coming redemption that allows us to endure this suffering? Well, there's. Four descriptors that kind of refer to the same thing in our passage. And these things are the weight that Paul is expecting to tip the scales from their focus on their suffering to bring them this hope. Notice them with me in verse 18. For I consider that the sufferings of the present time are not for comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Look at 19. For the creation waits with eager longing for, for what? For the revealing of the sons of God, verse 21, that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to decay and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God, verse 23. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who are the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait what eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. Each of these phrases. Or like a different camera angle on this final coming redemption remember paul's expecting this to be so stunning that it tips the scales and allow people to suffer their patience you see it's not merely the absence of sin and sickness and death that is compelling it's the presence of what is to come as well yes those things will be gone but there will be other things to delight in and enjoy that god accomplishes and does so let me just describe what these camera angles capture of this coming redemption. First, God's glory is going to be known universally. Jesus Christ, our Lord, fully God, fully man, will come through the clouds in His Majesty and in His power. And love itself, His worth and His beauty, will be known to all. Glory is a word that comes up a lot in this passage. I like how John Piper describes the word glory as God's worth gone public. God's worth gone public—that's what the glory of God is referring to. When that arrives, His beauty and His wisdom and His glory will be seen. Doubt will vanish. Worship will be inevitable, and every tongue will confess Him. Isaiah 11, 9, that the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Imagine that. Secondly, God's children will be revealed and glorified. Those loved for every generation with undeserved love and grace will meet their great king, Jesus. And God's grace will triumph over all of our unwillingness and sin and our penalty. And the Lamb will stand and plead and justify and glorify His children. He will claim His people. Amen. The angels will stagger at the amount of grace and kindness that is given to the spared family. How did God save that one? And how did God sanctify that one? And how did God glorify that one? And that will be true of the entire family of God. We'll receive immortal bodies that will not fail us or fight us anymore. Third, the creation will be freed from sin, to provide joy to all its inhabitants. The world will be transformed. It will not be merely improved and updated and refurbished, it will be brand new. Death, pain, suffering, disease, all will be extinct. New freedoms and pleasures will multiply. Boundless joy will be ours. God will govern perfectly, flawlessly, kindly, and truly. And we will live permanently in a city whose designer and builder is God. We'll be with those people from Hebrews 11 who desire a better country, that is a heavenly one. God will not be ashamed to be called our God and be prepared for us a city. In the world that we knew that we prized so highly, this world, in hindsight, may feel more like an evacuation center than home. We'll be with our Lord finally. Our treasure, our delight. Much more meaningful is the promise out of John 14 that said, Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me In my Father's house or many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. That matters in the day of life today. So, what are the implications of this? Having this incomparably better life? For the follower of Christ, first, patient hope is not only possible, it's rational. This is your hope today, in the midst of this disaster, and it will be your hope tomorrow. And it won't shift, it won't move, it's not going anywhere. You see how knowing the end affects how we live now. It affects how we try to preserve versus giving of ourselves. It allows us to grieve, yes, and be sad, yes, but we hold on to a much more substantial hope than what's around us. It takes the risk of self-sacrifice away. It does so many things to know the enemy. We meditate on that. For the non-Christian, this morning I want to briefly address you and what will be done this morning. You know, all of this hope and all these things I've been talking about this morning have been directed to those who are followers of Jesus Christ. This is a comfort that's designed for God's family, people who have repented of their sin and trusted in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Make them right with God. And if that's not you this morning, I me to ask you again. Where is your hope? Did it survive this past week? Has it shifted, or has it failed you, or has it caused you to think again about where your hope is? Has it proved unreliable? Is it currently in danger? You can be saved into this whole that we've been talking about this morning. You can be adopted into the family of God this morning. This inheritance, you can be signed on to that will this morning. How does a person become a forgiven child of God? First, you must acknowledge that you rebelled against him. That you've played a part in this mutiny that started all the way back in Genesis chapter 3. And you have to change your mind, which is what the Bible's word is, repent for that. You have to change your mind about who you are. Because you and I, we naturally live as if we're okay with God. And He'll just wink at what we've done, and we can stay independent from Him and that that's okay. He won't. And He'll bring rightful judgment on us for refusing to admit that we live in His world, and we exist for Him, and it's not the other way around. And so oddly enough, the thing you must, do, you must do first is to confess to being a sinner in need of rescue. And God hears those prayers of confession given and in humility. And he responds in grace. And he does that because of the second thing that we must do, which is to trust in the life of the resurrection of Jesus. It's because of Jesus that God hears those prayers and responds in grace. We must not only change our mind about who we are, but we must inform our minds to to accept Jesus for who he is. Fully God, fully man. That he came and lived a life of perfect obedience that we could not live. That he died as an atoning sacrifice for the sin that you and I have done. That he rose again, proving that payment for sins was final. That we could be victorious over sin and death. Mm -hmm. Essentially, you forsake your own salvation project, and you sign on to God's, which is accomplished through Jesus. That's what that looks like. Listen to what God says about this earlier in the book of Romans. Romans chapter 5 says, Therefore, since we have been declared righteous or justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. That's how we have peace with God. Through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. Now listen to this. And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. So we've been talking about. It. Later on it says in verse 6, For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one was scared to die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God chose his love for us, you and me, in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were still sinners. Maybe that's you this morning. And you're acknowledging that and you see that for the first time. Well, in order to be forgiven and be made new, you must acknowledge that you are a sinner before God, and that Christ is the way to be saved, to be made right with God by his life and death and resurrection. And God has promised to be gracious to anyone who submits to him in his way. It's astounding. He does that. He can be adopted into his family. And this hope, this glorious hope we've been talking about today, could be yours. If that's you this morning and you want to talk more about that, talk with me, elders and deacons, who can be available after service up front, uh, just to answer questions or to pray or do whatever you can do as a body here this morning. But make sure that you. Submit yourself to God so that you can have this hope that you won't flinch even in the midst of the circumstances that we have in past week. Let's pray. Lord God, you are a sure thing. You have all wisdom and all power. to wait with both hope and patience. That those who are followers of Christ here would be able to set their minds on things above, to assess the value of their eternal inheritance, and may that just tip the scales so that we can offer our lives I pray would be a comfort to one another in this. Lord, perspective is not something that we just naturally come by. It's through the work of your Holy Spirit. And so I pray that amidst our body and amidst the churches of uh, Sonoma County and Napa County, that you would empower your people to, to help in giving perspective. Lord, I pray for any of those here who have hopes that failed them this past week. We just heard say that I know exactly what that's like. God, I pray that you would help me to find a steady rock, a certain thing in your gospel. Thank you, Lead us in the weeks to come. We need your help to know how to live, how to serve, how to think. We rely on you, God, and we ask for the power of the Holy Spirit to be so. In the name of uh, our Lord, we pray all these things and expect your help. Christ. Mm-hmm. Amen. <laughs>